everybody wins. But those are the things we understand. Those are the negotiations our brains are designed to understand. We've exceeded the data and sophistication that the normal person's brain can understand. And so the systems have to correct to that. And that is what collapse is. It's a reversal to systems we're biologically designed to be able to manage. That is the voice of Rebecca Costa, sociobiologist, futurist, and author. She joins me today to discuss AI analytics and the future of problem solving. You are listening to the podcast with John C. Lemon. Ms. Costa, welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. You are the author of On the Verge and The Watchman's Rattle, A Radical New Theory of Collapse. What is the role of a sociobiologist? Well, a sociobiologist is someone who looks for the evolutionary or genetic reasons that a society behaves the way that it does. Uh, you know, we're all biological organisms and we have some programming and that programming enters into uh, how a society comes together, its culture, how decisions are made, and even as far as why those societies collapse and regenerate. And as a futurist, you use analytics to identify and address areas of concern using predictive models. Yeah, I always worry about the word futurist. You know, I have to tell people I don't talk to dead people. Uh, I don't read tarot cards. <laughs> I, I use predictive analytics and artificial intelligence models to, to make these predictions. And uh, most of the predictions, you know, we're, we're actually very used to predictions. I, I mean, we, we have collected so much data on weather, we're, we're getting better and better at predicting the size of storms and what kind of flooding conditions will occur and when dangerous electrical storms might st set off fires these kinds of things. Um, we're getting better and better at looking at the, the, you know, billions and billions and billions of data points and being able to predict what the next event is more likely to be. So um, that's what a futurist does. A futurist looks at past behavior, but more importantly, real-time data that's occurring and then, you know, uh, predicts what the next more, more probable event or outcome might be. There are different competing interests and how to address the challenges associated with the pandemic. How do you think we as a society could be more effective in our response to the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, we don't know what we don't know. So when a disruption that's dangerous occurs, a, a, a direct threat, we have to do everything, knowing that as real-time data makes itself apparent, that some of the things that we tried to do were ineffective. So the interesting thing about a sudden pandemic is that historical data is not that relevant. So we have all this data we've collected about the history of diseases, right, and the, and the human immune system, but suddenly something new comes on the scene. And when something new comes on the scene, you don't really know what you're dealing with. And so 
if I were to talk about what we should have done, uh, which everybody has seemed to become an expert at, shoulda, coulda, woulda, I would have said, if something is a direct threat and you don't know what it is, you have to do everything. You know, you shut the economy down, you shut travel down, you, you tell people don't come out of your houses, we don't know what this is, we don't know how it's transmitted, we don't know, you know, why some people are dying and some have no symptoms at all, but we're going to collect as much real-time data as we are, we're going to keep you informed uh, as we start to change our position based on real facts. But we didn't have a lot of facts, and so in a case like that, you, you, you have to diversify your response. That's the key word, diversify your response, knowing that later you're going to take some hits for the things that you thought might work and didn't. Right. Do you believe that our response has become more sophisticated over time as we gather more data, more information on how to combat the disease? Yes, because, you know, we can use masks as an example. You know, I, I would have taken the position, everybody put a mask on. And then if the real-time data later said, well, masks aren't really doing anything. Actually, they're really bad because people keep putting them on and off, on and off, and they've touched surfaces with their hands. And so, hey, we have some data that shows that people with wearing masks are getting or have higher incidence of contracting the disease. We might have found that out. That's not what we found out, but we might have found that out. And then I would have taken a hit on that side. I, I, you know, when I don't know what I'm dealing with as a scientist, this is the approach I take. Better safe than sorry. You do everything. And later people say, hey, Rebecca, you said this and that wasn't true. And you said this and that. Yeah, I know. We didn't have any data to prove it or disprove it. So we did it all. Right. And and so you, you have to overreact. Look, here's the thing. When you're dealing with the threat and you don't know what the threat is, you have you have two choices. You don't have the middle choice. That later becomes what we judge people by. You can overreact or underreact. That's, that, those are the two buttons. Right. Now, if it's a life-threatening situation, I would suggest panic is appropriate as a reaction because nature designed us to panic and our bodies to flood with chemicals that spur us to action, fight or flight, when there's something that's life-threatening. That's mm-hmm. self-preservation. I would suggest to you that when something that is this contagious occurs, that we should overreact and that the time to underreact is later as we have data and we can discount certain things are not true. You wrote a paper titled COVID-19 as a social trigger. Give us some groundwork for understanding what a social trigger is. Well, as you know, in the Watchman's Rattle, uh, which I wrote 10 years ago, I identified a way that societies behave prior to unilateral collapse, where all their social institutions stop working. The the pattern is that complexity and progress begins moving at an accelerated rate beyond what the average person on Main Street can make sense of anymore. They don't know where their water or food is coming from. They don't know the laws that, that govern their society. They, they really can't get their hands on all the facts because it's just too complicated. Day-to-day life becomes unmanageable. When, after that happens, that's the first stage. The second stage is that there's mass confusion between what is an unproven belief and what is an empirical fact. The third stage is that public policy then begins to be forged on unproven beliefs and then the four stages, there's some triggering event that causes the, colla- the collapse of the entire society. 
And as you know, I went back and I looked at the Mayans, the Khmer, the Ming Empire, the Egyptian Empire, the Roman Empire, and this pattern of social behavior occurred that made the society vulnerable to a match being lit to the tinder. Now, I don't know if COVID is that event or the upcoming election, what happens the day after the election. I don't know if it'll be an environmental event, you know, a, a superstorm and the half the United States burning up. I don't know what it is, but I do know that we're behaving in the same way that those great societies, great, the Mayans were around for 3,000 years, not a couple of hundred years. Right. So we have to remember that, that there were great societies before us that behaved in this exact way prior to something triggering that event. And I find that it's very interesting that historians are very interested in the triggering event. What caused the Roman Empire to collapse, right? But not in how that society was behaving leading up to that. Were there ways in which they were acting that made them vulnerable to the event? You gave the example of the Mayans who were tremendous engineers and building infrastructure for their city and cosmopolitan areas, how they abandoned that to go into what we will call today superstition. And so that's what you're talking about, what led to their demise. During the early years of the uh, Mayan development, you can see that they were pursuing, they were building massive dams they were phenomenal hydraulic engineers. They knew that they had a tenuous relationship with water and that they had to save water. They were the first to discover refrigeration systems. They built underground cisterns to store food there and to store water and keep the water from evaporating. And, but, but in parallel with that, they were practicing fetishism and they would sacrifice captured prisoners to the gods so that the gods would bring the rain back. But you can see that slowly over a 3,000-year period, just prior to the Mayan collapse, they no longer were building dams because the drought was becoming so severe and there were no more measures, there's no more crop rotation, no, no more uh, water preservation methods. They began sacrificing their own people, virgins, and at the very end, prior to the collapse, were uh, sacrificing unspoiled newborns. That was their remedy for the problem. The gods were unhappy with them, and they were no longer pursuing empirical-based uh, remedies. There are three steps that you mentioned that lead to the collapse of a society. Gridlock, mass confusion, and drift from legislation. Where are we in the United States? Well, I used to let people guess, but I, I guess we're not guessing anymore. Is there mass confusion between what's an empirical fact and what's an unproven belief? I think we can say that that's true for most of the population. And are our leaders forging policy based on unproven beliefs? We generally see some symptoms of that as well. Uh, my personal opinion is we're in the later stages of three, of the third stage, we're due probably within the next decade and maybe sooner for a massive correction. Gridlock, you define that as failing to act, even though we have the tools to act, we just don't do it. And then, of course, mass confusion. You just mentioned empirical facts are set aside for unproven beliefs. And of course, the third one is when we begin to drift from writing responsible legislation and paying attention to what is healthy public policy. So that's what we are looking at historically. Well, you and 
have talked about this and, and, you know, it's worth bringing up that our leaders, most of our leaders in Washington, D.C., in the United States are lawyers. Uh, and, and so it's worthwhile to note that lawyers are trained to fight and win. Uh, if you're ever in a lawsuit, you want to find the meanest, most successful, uh, most winningest, if that's a word, uh, lawyer that you can, and you want to put them on your side. Um, and so it's, it's, it's no surprise, or should come as no surprise, that we have a lot of arguing going on um, and very little compromise, because after all, what is compromise? Compromise is both winning and losing at the same time. You get to pick what you're going to lose on and what you're going to win on. And we don't have a lot of scientists or uh, math majors. <laughs> so, uh, it, it, so as a result of that, it, 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 we, we see a continuation of the gridlock and we see a continuation of public policy being forged on unproven beliefs. In this moment of our current crisis, again, this is reflecting upon your writing. You mentioned when systems break down, we go to the bare minimum. Instead of having complex markets, we perhaps go to a bartering system, something that we can understand. Where we are now currently in the United States with our complex systems, do you see us going back to a more simplified system? You raised the example of bartering. Imagine that all financial systems globally just completely collapse, right? What is the human brain good at? Now, We've broken down the human genome, and we now know that we have probably a 2 to 3% difference in genetic material from a bonobo monkey. That's not, that's not a lot, and we've leveraged the heck out. Uh, the reality is, is, is that our brains understand barter. You have some eggs. I have some carrots. We meet in the street. We bicker with each other till we both think we got the better deal. We make the trade. And you go home with carrots and eggs, and I go home with carrots and eggs. And it's a win-win for both of us. What we don't understand is credit default swaps. Okay, I'm a pretty smart gal, but I've had financial people try to explain how credit default swaps work. I don't understand them. And, and many times I sit in front of my financial advisor, and he's talking to me about, you know, all the things I have to do to be able to retire and, you know, 20, 25% of it, I just smile and nod. I real, really don't even want to ask a question because I'm going to look stupid. I, I don't understand it. So when we have a collapse, a unilateral collapse, understand that we're going to go to a level of systems that the human brain biologically can handle. And then we'll build back up again. This is the history of humankind. There are many people who say we're now in a new normal. With that in mind, with all the changes happening and our inability to keep up with all the technological changes, that's what's presenting the challenge to us. How do we prevent ourselves from handing down the next crisis or the next bundle of challenges to the generation that's following us? Well, there's no way to prevent handing these problems down. I mean, we're not going to take care of them, all of them, uh, overnight. They're very complicated. It doesn't mean that we don't have the means. We actually have the means. We have the technology and the knowledge to solve every social problem that we face today. It has nothing to do with our knowledge and our capabilities. It has to do with our paleolithic emotions. You know, uh, as I had mentioned to you uh, some time ago, Ed Wilson uh, described our current situation better than any other human that I know. He said, we have paleolithic emotions medieval institutions, and godlike technology. 
And when you put that all in a blender, you wind up with the kind of confusion that you have now. I believe we will have a correction and we will revert to very, very simple systems. And I believe that those lessons that are learned will be carried by future leaders and will build a better society that sidesteps the kinds of institutional problematic, systematic problems that we face. You know, we get better with each time we build a society. The society is freer, it's smarter, the conditions under which humans live are better. And uh, I think this next round will be, the next round that we build up a great society will be a global society, and it will be much different than what we know now. How did our systems become over-complex? How, is that is it greed? Is it I don't what is it? Just curiosity? How did we get to this place? You have to understand who we are as a species and why we rose to the top of the living pyramid. We're very very fast adapters, fast habituators. So let's say for a long time you really wanted a massive large screen TV to watch your football games on, right? Well, here's the thing. You think about it, you think about it, you're, you're checking the internet for the best price, then you go out and you buy it, and you, you install it, and you bring all your friends over, and from the moment that you install it and turn it on, right, your happiness with the TV is on a slow curve downward. Right. And pretty much in a couple of weeks, you're walking past the TV and you're not even looking at it. How many people look at the paintings on their walls anymore? You know, you, you just, we habituate very, very quickly. Now, that's a good thing because when, a ba- when something bad happens to you, uh, you have a negative experience, you're likely to get over it rather quickly, right? Uh, I'm not talking about, you know, uh, years and years and years. Uh, you know, you move on. People say, hey, you know, deal with it. Move on, right? So the fact that we're very fast habituators to different changes in the environment or different experiences is a really good thing. But it also makes us progress junkies, right? We want the new thing. We want to hear the new news. We want the new gossip. We want, we, we are constantly searching novelty. We are novelty searching organisms. And that has driven us to the top of the living pyramid, but it has a downside. We'll never stop. How prepared are we to deal with the possibility of a COVID-19 vaccine not coming as quickly as we would like? There are those that are saying we can see a vaccine by the end of this year. There are those that are saying sometime the middle of next year. What happens if we're looking at 2022 or beyond? Well, as you know, and people listening to the program in 1984, when AIDS was running rampant, we faced the same kind of unknown territory. We didn't know what AIDS was. We didn't know how it was being transmitted. We thought that if a mosquito bit one person and bit with AIDS and bit another person, that they would get AIDS or that you could cough and give it to another person. At that time, the head of uh, the Secretary of Health and Human Services of the United States said, we're talking to all the scientists around the world and all the drug companies, and we're going after an AIDS vaccine. We're going to, you know, no holds bar. We're going to fund any AIDS research and we're going to uh, create a vaccine. That was 36 years ago. We do not have an AIDS vaccine. Even if we had an AIDS vaccine, it wouldn't be that effective. 
the the problem is that vaccines are very complex and these diseases are very complex and they tend to mutate and and they mutate quickly and that's what we're finding with COVID-19. So even if we come up with a vaccine, it might be 15, 20% effective, but it's not going to be 100% effective and I don't believe we're going to have one for a while. But there is some good news and I want to talk about the good news because the good news is this. We have never been good at keeping you from getting a disease. We can't keep you from getting cancer. We can't, in fact, vaccines have only eradicated one disease off the face of the earth since the beginning of humankind, and that's smallpox. We're not good at that. Why can't we just say that as scientists? We're not good at keeping you from getting stuff. But here's what we are good at. We're good at keeping you from dying from things. You don't have to die of AIDS anymore. We didn't come up with a vaccine that will prevent you from getting it, but we did come up with a treatment, a therapy. And if you look at the progress we've made since COVID-19 hit the United States, the therapies have become so effective that the president of the United States can check himself into Walter Reed, get advanced therapies, and literally days later walk out and go back to work. So what we're good at doing is keeping you from dying of something. And once we can take death off the table and we can say to you with great sincerity, listen, you might get COVID-19. If you start feeling any symptoms, go see your doctor. He'll run a five-minute test. If you have test positive, he's going to write you a prescription. You're going to go to CVS or Walgreens, go through the drive-thru, get your prescription, Go home, take the medicine, and two days later, you'll be okay. Once we can say that to you, then we can go back to normal. You won't care if there's a vaccine or not. So we're talking about from pandemic to endemic? In some ways, yes. The reality is that if you can get a disease and you know you won't die from it, you'll be fine. You'll resume much of your normal activity. What role can artificial intelligence play in moving us forward? We're collecting so much data. And as I pointed out, real-time data is more important in an emergency than any historic data. So we've never faced anything like COVID-19. So we have to understand that as the real data is coming in, algorithms are being put together. and And we're discovering many, many ways to save people's lives we're discovering, uh, gee, if, it up, if, if we have an uptick like this, we have to shut the businesses down. We're beginning to get formulas. That's what algorithms are. They're formulas that inform us on what actions we need to take. And that's really what artificial intelligence is so good at. It's really, you know, predictive analytics is very, very powerful when we can take a lot of data and say, the storm is going to go to category four and it's going to hit this city at this approximate date. So let's evacuate a million people out of there and save their lives. As a futurist, this is a busy time for you, I would imagine, with all that's going on. My work has just exploded since the beginning of the year. You know, everyone is trying to make sense of what's going on, particularly our leaders in Washington, D.C., who all have copies of my books and really want to navigate a complex environment with as little failure as possible because you know, in this particular case, the stakes are very high. And there are models for dealing with high failure rate environments. It's just that we don't typically uh, pull them out and dust them off, but we certainly are. uh, They are certainly are in play right now. Well, Ms. Costa, I have thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. 
Thank you so much for dropping by. Well, thank you. And thank you for the good work you're doing. Happy to do it. Rebecca Costa, socio, biologist, futurist, and author. For additional resources from Ms. Costa, visit www.rebeccacosta.com. That's our podcast for today. I'm John C. Lemon. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you.